HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, it's the final episode of our series on global trade. We're thinking futuristically, from China's ambitious plans for a new Silk Road to the future of borders and automation. If you're a banana, you know, it's easy to cross the border. But if you're a person who's trying to follow the jobs, uh, it's a lot more difficult, if not impossible, to do so in an authorized and safe fashion. They love food trucks and they love growing your own food because these things are not dependent on essentially government systems. So there's a whole politics to pretzels on the dark web. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Today we are having a chat with my good friend Charles Draghi, universally called Chuck. Chuck inhabits the rarefied strata of top chefs in Boston, mentor to many, revered by diners at his restaurant Herbaluce, and lauded by the critics. But before all that, Chuck was a chef in Boston's North End, one of the country's last little Italys, where locals and tourists go for color and red sauce flavor. It's where Chuck served up the kind of dishes unheard of in this traditional Italian neighborhood. The restaurant was called Marcuccio's, and yes, there are a few gangsters involved. Let's have a listen. I was a sous chef at a very popular restaurant that was kind of a high-volume French-Japanese fusion cuisine restaurant. I was looking for my own ship to run as a captain because, you know, back in those days, being a sous chef sounded impressive, but I believe I was taking home about $180 a week. So I was looking to try to be able to make a living uh, and scouring the newspapers. And there's a little ad that said they're opening up a, a restaurant in the North End that they really wanted to be sort of unique. And they wanted a chef to run it like it was his own place. So I thought, great, you know, that sounds good. So I went in to do an interview and there was a, a manager. He wanted me to meet the owner. 
the place was called Marcucho's. This was Mark. And the restaurant was right across the street from where the owner's grandfather had run a push cart selling fish. And the owner came in and he was kind of all over the place because he was actually not in the restaurant business. He was in the gangster business and he was trying to get out of the gangster business. And so he didn't know much about restaurants. We sat down, we just started talking about growing up Italian and the food we ate. And we didn't really talk about the restaurant itself that much at all. And after a few minutes, he just looked at the guy and said, I want this guy. And the manager said, well, we have a few other people. He goes, no, I want this guy. So I thought, okay, well, this is great. He said, no, we have to meet my partner. So it was the person putting in all the money. His partner had a very successful place in the North End, long line all the time. But it was sort of one of those red sauce restaurants. And that's what his partner, who's also his cousin, wanted. But Mark was a little crazy. And he had been in New York to some real avant-garde restaurant where like the whole restaurant was black and the tablecloths were black and everything was black. And they brought him a plate with a blue scallop on it that glowed. So I have the partner who's putting in all the money wants, you know, the Chianti bottle with the candle in it, the checkered tablecloths. And Mark wants some kind of space food, you know, and how do I try to combine the two? So eventually they just said to me, well, you know, just go for whatever you think, you know, do whatever you think. So I thought, well, that's great. But, you know, how do I meld these? So we did a menu that had some of the usual things that you see on the North End. But there's also some things that were very different. One of my signature dishes was roasted rack wild boar. We had razor clams and all these things nobody else was doing. So we opened up and it was pretty busy right off the bat. Even though we didn't have a sign, nobody knew who we were. And the opening manager worked with me the first couple nights. And allegedly, he had all this experience, but it was a mess. I mean, he was running a pasta station, and it looked like a bomb went off at the end of the service. There was tomato sauce all over the walls. I was like, what is this, a Scorsese movie? You know, spaghetti hanging from the ceiling. So I decided I had to hire someone. And I got this young guy who worked down the street. His name was David, and, and David had no experience. And I brought him in, and I said, you know, you're going to have to be the sous chef here. And he was excited. I'm going to be a sous chef? Oh, my God, I can't believe it. I said, yeah, because there's two of us, and I'm not going to be a sous chef, so tag, you're it. And this was like our opening week. And we went into our first weekend, and we were jammed for two guys on the line, and one has no idea what he's doing. So the, the place is jammed. And the two partners had had this debate about whether or not to do desserts. But most restaurants in North End don't offer dessert. When you have dinner, you just go across the street and get a cannoli or whatever. So they had a debate about whether or not to do dessert. Mark really wanted to do dessert. And I thought, you know, they kind of left it up to me, but I thought we settled on no dessert. So Saturday night, the place is packed, two of us on the line. The waitress comes up to me. It was an open kitchen. And she says to me, um, Chef, so what's this great dessert that Mark's been telling all the customers about that you have? He said, dessert? I didn't think we were doing dessert. And she said, no, no, he's telling everybody you have this great dessert that you're doing for the, you know, the opening week. And I said, awesome. I said, well, pour him some Prosecco and I'll be right back. And I looked at Dave. I said, I'll be right back. Now, this look of panic and fear came over him. So I ran down the street and there was this little produce shop that was underground called Colore Fruit. And I'd run in there. And I said, Giovanni, Giovanni was the uh, owner. And I said, Giovanni, I have to make something quick. I need something really good. And I saw some beautiful big peaches and I reached him for him. And he slapped my hand. He goes, no Marcuccio, no peach, a Paris. 
He handed me these redolent, beautiful, perfumey pears. And I take the pears back to the line. I scoop up the seeds. I make a quick, simple syrup. I poach them. I put in saffron and cinnamon and all these great things. And I burn some caramel on the side. And I make a quick cream sauce and throw in some lavender. And I said, give him another glass of Prosecco. I'll be out in a minute. Put some mascarpone in them. Boom, I have this caramel sauce on it. Out it goes. People loved it. They went crazy for it. So they start telling all the other tables around them, hey, have you tried the pear thing? You got to save room for the pears. So next thing I know, everybody's ordering pears. So I run back down to Clory Fruit. I'm buying more and more pears, running back and forth. The guy who's my sous chef is completely freaking out. He's in a panic attack, sitting on a milk crate crying. And uh, meanwhile, the owner's going around telling more and more people, yeah, I guess that pear's a big hit. I mean, everybody's got to have the pears. So uh, that dish, which was the quickest, easiest thing I could come up with, became my signature. And that was like 25 years ago. And every restaurant I've opened, every place I've gone, people always ask me, you're going to do the poached pear thing, right? So even though nobody knew who we were, we didn't even have a sign for like two months. We became known throughout the North End as the best restaurant, famous for its poached pear. Yeah, that's the way the business goes. So the partner who wanted to do the red checkered tablecloth thing was very upset about the menu having oddball things. What happened, a lot of North Enders would line up and look at the menu and go, ah, oh, it's too New York. It's too weird. It'll never work. So this partner comes in the next, I think it was like on, on the Monday after this weekend. He goes, yeah, you know, you guys do whatever you want. It works. <laughs> like, okay. Just took a poached pear to put us over the top. But it was, uh, he totally, you know, let us have free reign. And the thing about the menu that we did there and this is the thing that amazed Mark, was he wanted to do this really cool restaurant. And he said to me when I first started in the interview, because look, I don't know anything about restaurants. You know, I really want, I just want to have like, you know, the coolest place on the street. And I said, well, if you don't tie my hands and ask me to swim, which was a metaphor he understood. I said, you let me do what I need to do then I can make this one of the coolest restaurants in the city, one of the best restaurants in the city. He thought it was crazy. So because we weren't known and we had opened without any fanfare or any press or anything, people would come up to look at the menu and they'd read it and they would have the rack of boar and razor clams and things like that. And they would just like kind of shake their heads and they'd walk away. So after couple of weeks of this, the owner's like, I don't know. I don't know if this is going to work. You know, people seem like it's a little weird. Or maybe we should do chicken palm. You know, and I'm thinking every city have to have chicken palm. I said, Mark, you do chicken palm. You're going to play that 25 cent game. You know, everybody's got chicken palm up and down the street. So what you do is one person's got it at nine fifty. The other person has it at $9 and a quarter. So you go there because you saved 25 cents. You know, you start playing that game where you just keep on racing to the bottom of who can charge less for the chicken part. And I said, when somebody knows you're going to the North End and they're going to have dinner all week long, they're thinking about chicken parm. Like they're, it's in their head, chicken parm, chicken parm, chicken parm, chicken parm. So when they drive to North End and the whole time the air is saturated with the aroma of tomato and garlic. So now it's like really it's like throbbing in your brain, chicken parm, chicken parm, chicken. So nothing but chicken parm is going to satisfy you. It doesn't even matter. You could be giving away a free Cadillac with a steak and then I have to have chicken parm. So they come in and they look for a place 
that has an open seat because everybody's got chicken parm. So in your journey looking for a place, you see a menu that says, well, rack of wild boar, razor clams. And this is what I told Mark. I said, now, Mark, I said, remember the faces of the people who read the menu and walk away. Just remember those faces. Within two weeks, you'll see those faces come in here to eat. He said, no, I don't think so. They only like the chicken parm. That's it. I said, Mark, trust me on this. Within a couple of weeks, he started seeing the faces. He comes up, he goes, what are you, a magician? These people, they read the menu. They didn't like the menu. They went across the street. Now they're coming back. I said, yeah, Mark, because now you get your chicken parm. You're like, great, I got my fix. And all week long, you're like, rack of boar. I wonder what the hell that's like. I've never had rack of boar. I got to go back there. I got to get that rack of boar or razor clams or whatever it is. It sticks in your head. And now it's on your bucket list. You're like, I'm not leaving this planet without knowing what rack of boar is like. So when you park the car, yeah, there's still the tomato sauce and the garlic in the air, but you've steeled yourself against those senses. You're now like rack of boar, rack of boar. You're like a Viking. I have to have boar. I have to have boar. And so people come in and they tried it. And within two weeks, we had all the people that were just spaghetti, meatballs, chicken parm, nothing else will do. There's nothing wrong with those except that every restaurant was selling them. So we were selling something different. So next thing you know, we were full. And we did more business than any other restaurant in the North End. You know, for Mark, he's like, wow, I got my cool restaurant. And his partner's like, hey, we got something that's really cool and it's packed. And it doesn't have a checker tablecloth. We'll be back with Chuck Draghi in a moment. He'll tell us a little bit about the Champagne Gang, a group of gangsters with, you guessed it, champagne tastes. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we're back with Chuck Draghi. So on my first meeting with Mark, when he hired me as a chef, he did this thing. He looked at me and goes, oh, I just want you to know, I want everything to be out, you know, in the open. I want you to understand what's going on here. So he took his hands and he flashed his both hands twice and then one hand once to signal 25. And I was like, 25? I'm like, what, what is that? He goes, that's how many. 
I said, how many, how many what? He goes, that's how many, you know, if you want to know, you know, what my record is, that's, that's how many. So first thing I said, said, so Mark, can you finish this story and have me leave here? But I also knew that when he was a kid, he was a, a phenomenal hockey player and he had gotten a scholarship as a hockey player. So I didn't really know how to respond to 25. So I just said to him, does that, does that include assists on goal? And, and he looked at me for a second and again, he goes, oh yeah, assists on goal. Yeah, that's good. I get it. I get it. Yeah. No, that number will be much higher. Like, okay. Like, whatever. I'm just here to cook, right? So you tell me when I cook something you like and give me a five-minute head start if I cook something you don't like. You know, I know that I could be there working 100 hours a week and I could be working for somebody who used to be in the rackets and that was fine. You know, he was a very strong person. A couple of times I saw him get angry. It wasn't at me, like, thankfully, but and his, his eyes went back in his head and he made a fist. He had this little hand. He made a fist. All of a sudden, it was, his fist was like five times the size. And I was like, well, I don't want to be on receiving end of that. But it was a very interesting place to work because a lot of the people who were in his previous profession would come and go. But they had to wait outside for permission to enter the restaurant. It was like vampires. They would stand outside. Sometimes you'd see these large NFL linemen looking guys in suits that were too small. And they were standing outside and they would wait. Mark had an apartment above the restaurant. So they'd either ring his apartment or they'd just yell up to his window and uh, wait for him to come down. I remember one guy had just gotten out of uh, the joint on a four-year bid. Everybody was in for four years. You steal a pack of gum or you kill a room full of people. It's always four years. And they get out with an anklet. This guy came up to the line. He was telling me, you know, the right way you make the gravy, the right way you make the gravy. I'm like, sure. It's like, you take a you take a razor blade and you slice the garlic paper thing and you put it in and it melts. He was also talking to me about the proper way to roast duck. And turns out gangsters, particularly the real hardcore ones, are real. They really know food. So I asked this guy, I said, wow, you know a lot about food. He goes, yeah, well, you know, I got a lot of time to read. The library had a very large cooking section in the prison. So this guy, I'll call him the, the Capitan. He was part of what they used to call the Champagne Gang. The Champagne Gang was a small group of these uh, mobsters who used to go from restaurant to restaurant, only the, the top tier ones. And they would ask them to bring up bottles of wine that they had hidden that weren't even on the list. So this guy is part of the Champagne Gang. And he, at that time, paid the most for a bottle of wine at auction. He's paid $10,000 for a bottle of first growth Bordeaux. And he went up on the stage, gave him 10 grand in cash on the podium, picked it up because he's supposed to wait and pick it up. After. He just walked up, picked it up, opened it and started drinking it on the stage. So it's like, yeah, it's not bad. You know, for 10 G's, yeah, I could do better, but okay, whatever. So he used to come in and he would say, you know, I was just over at the Ritz. I got this bottle of, well, one time I think it was Romani Conti paid like 10 grand for. He goes, but I want to have it with your duck. You have the best duck. So I'm going to come over, two, three friends. Is that okay? Yeah. And they'd show up, $10,000 bottle of Romani Conti. And he'd come up and he's like, you know, the wine is good, but that duck makes it taste better than it is. I'm like, okay. So I just said to him, so should I charge you 20000 for the duck? 
And he just started laughing, you know. He goes, well, you know, if you want to, I could pay him. The main thing that I got out of working at Marcuccio's is that, you know, I basically was allowed to do whatever I, I felt like I needed to do. I was going to do contemporary Italian, which is basically, it's a, it's a word for French food with Italian ingredients stuck in it. You know, it's butter sauces and stuff like that. And so my girlfriend asked me, is that the kind of food that you love? And I said, well, it's the food that I'm trained to do, you know, classically trained. She said, no, no, but what do you really love? What do you really love? If you could eat one kind of food every day, what would it be? And I said, well, the way I grew up with tearing crusty bread on the porch, my father put some sardines on it, some cherry peppers and, you know, that kind of thing and, and picking stuff from the garden. She said, well, then do that. I said, well, I can't do that. It wouldn't be chefy enough, you know, it wouldn't be technical. Like, what? why would they need a chef for that? She's like, look, you're going to be there a million hours a week, maybe for 10 years. Who knows? You have to do the thing you really love. And so I learned that while all the other sort of name chefs were doing this contemporary Italian thing and the whole North End was doing red sauce, I kind of went my own direction and it was a hit. And so what I really learned was that if you cook what you really love, they'll show up with the same love for it. And you never get tired of that. And you're sharing it with people. That's the main thing. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team, producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. This podcast is supported by the Hunger to Health Collaboratory a cross-sector leadership initiative dedicated to reducing the health consequences of hunger. With generous support from Stop and Shop, Hunger to Health Collaboratory convenes partners across sectors to advocate for health equity and food security. For more information, visit hungertohealthcollaboratory.org. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 